Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to yet again another episode of the Politics Band Podcast. I want to first apologize for not getting a podcast out last week. Seems like things got a little bit busy around here, and unfortunately, time, just as it does for so many of us out there, got away from me, and I missed a uh, vital opportunity to get a podcast out to you. So I'm going to take the opportunity today to try and at least catch up on a few items and talk to you about something that I came across over the past week that I think you'll find very interesting. Throughout all of politics and studying the media, there's always been this attempt by at least myself to really understand where things begin. We have a lot of specific issues that have all sorts of details and nuance, but I really try to understand the root cause of these issues. What is the core element that people possess that causes them to blossom into a whole different area of view? Maybe very simply trying to understand why people think the way they do. Like, what is the the root aspect that then results in all these different branches off into all these different specific instances of issues. It's one thing to talk about taxes, for an example, and it's one thing to be an advocate that the rich don't pay their fair share or being pro-abortion or being anti-gun. These are all very specific issues. But what really interests me is understanding What's the core element behind all of these individual issues? What's the the core experience or the root experience within someone's life or some root belief that they have that then results in all of these different issues being something that they support or something that they reject? And in many cases, it usually boils down to some aspect of experience or some position in life. There's always a personal touch that tends to cause people to believe things that they believe. And I believe myself that experience plays an enormous role in all of this because we're limited by our own experiences, because we can only understand and know the things that we have personally experienced. That means that there's a vast amount of other experiences, which we have really no way to relate to and no way to really understand. However, the thing about the United States, I think that makes this country so special is that the inherent system that we have is designed around the fact that we have all of these different people with all these different levels of experience. And as a result, the system is at least designed to allow all of us to be able to live sort of harmoniously with each other by having our own governments that are supposed to be representative of us, the people, those governments be as close to us as possible. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, it's most likely because you don't share that view as being something that we can see today. You understand that the governmental system that we have today is not at all reflective of the government system that, we, that we're supposed to have. And so because of that, everything is screwed up. We have a lot of, we have massive intolerance where there's supposed to be tolerance. We have a lot of government overreach into areas that the government has no busy be- has no business rather being in and as a result everything is screwed up and there's a reason why so many people are unhappy with the way things are going because the way that the trajectory of our entire society is towards a single centralized system that is neither representative nor does it have the best interests of the people at large 
as, as, as its core premise. Unfortunately, when you have a centralized system, especially in a representative republic that we have today, you only end up being able to cater really to one side or the other. There's, it's very difficult to be able to be all things to all people. And so I'm trying to do my best to understand, especially from the side of progressives, what exactly makes them tick. I'm trying to understand why have we gotten to the place that we have gotten today? What is it about individual liberty and personal responsibility? What is it about these elements that is that's so negative? Why are they rejected so heavily? Why is it that we have millions and millions and millions of Americans who would rather surrender their freedoms to a centralized system, a system which does not view them as individuals, but only views them as a, a vote or a number or a skin color or a gender or a sexual orientation, where a system that categorizes people into different pigeonholes that are then ranked in some hierarchical fashion based on how influential they could be or maybe how much money they can give. I don't know that they don't, the, the system doesn't, isn't designed to see you as a person, as a whole individual. And that's inherently why it's so important that we continue to protect the individual from essentially the democratic mob, because ultimately when the group is able to overrule the individual, we all cease to be individuals. And instead we end up in this sort of group identity where who we are as individual people is irrelevant compared to the specific traits that we share with the group as a whole. So this has been, I dare I say a lifelong search, but it, it it's been something that's been part of my own studies and part of my own curiosity for a very long time. I came across a bit of information this past week that I feel, while it's maybe not the silver bullet, it did a really fantastic job at summarizing exactly why things are happening the way they're happening today. And, and I'm going to give you a brief understanding of how I view sort of the landscape before I get into what I found. I promise I think you're going to find this very interesting as well. There seems to be this consistent need for crisis this, and this consistent need to like keep bringing people to the forefront who are marginalized and who are victims. And it seems like the progressive left has this obsession with gathering in, in almost an army of marginalized or seeming or, you know, allegedly marginalized people convincing them that they're all victims of some larger system that is beyond their control. And then convincing them that the only way that they can regain that control is through the power of government. And this creates this sort of this, this triangle where you have three main roles that exists within the country today. You have the role of the savior and we can, you can most likely visualize a person or a group of people who fit within this category. The savior of course is going to be your empathetic and caring progressive leftist who is interested in helping someone who's downtrodden or been victimized. And that leads us into a second category, which of course is the victim. Now, being a victim in America today is 
probably one of the most powerful single categories that you can actually occupy. Victims are not responsible for their own circumstances. Victims obviously don't have any power to do anything about their circumstances. And so because they're blameless, they are essentially shielded from any criticism or judgment that society might normally render upon them. And that's the thing that historically within the United States, and of course this exists in other countries as well, We've always had a system of laws, but we've also had this this inner layer of culture, which is defined by ethics and morals. And things that may not have been illegal may have actually been ethically or morally incorrect from a cultural standpoint. And so the culture was a way of influencing people within society to maintain certain, let's just say, you know, good behaviors. But as time has gone on, the American culture has been sort of eviscerated and torn apart to the point where today, if you pass judgment on somebody, then that's a negative thing. You're not allowed to judge somebody's actions or inactions. You're not allowed to point out areas where maybe bad choices were made or insist that people be held responsible for their poor choices. Instead, we're told to be quiet. We're told that we don't understand the plight that these individuals go through. And as a result, what's happened is that cultural sort of the, the, the bumpers, the, the guardrails of our culture that normally kept people making proper decisions and doing the right things that helped society and helped people in general. For example, you know, graduating high school, getting married before having children, you know, having a full-time job. These are all things that essentially guarantee for, with, within maybe like 5% you know, or give or take, guarantee that you're not going to be poor, that you're not going to be in poverty. But instead, we've ripped these cultural guardrails out and we've done it on purpose. And essentially now the only thing that we have left is the law. But now even the law is being used as a manipulative tool to destroy the lives of other people that are deemed unworthy or undesirable. But like I said, you're always getting, but the victim class has become enormously powerful. So you have the saviors, and of course, the saviors use the law to punish the third party, and that's the perpetrator. Because you see, saviors need victims to save, and victims need a perpetrator to blame. And so all three of these roles work together. We all know who the perpetrator is portrayed as in today's media. It's the man, it's the white man, it's the Christian male, it's the heterosexual male. You can fill this with just about anything that you have seen over the past couple of years in terms of the the nameless, faceless perpetrator. These are the people who are deemed to be in power, the rich, the wealthy, uh, you know, the ruling class. Those are the perpetrators. And of course, the saviors, those are the empathetic people. Those are the people who are compassionate. They're the good people. They're the people who can't have to go out of their way to tell you how wonderful they are. They want to help the poor. They want to help the minorities. They don't actually do anything in terms of actually being productive, but this is a way of making themselves feel like their life has meaning. And then, of course, we have the victims, which we've talked about earlier. But I've been trying to understand, especially when it comes to the victims within the United States how we always seem to keep coming up with 
new victims. We always seem to be, there seems to be an endless supply of downtrodden, beaten, and abused individuals within the United States. And no matter how much our society advances, no matter how good things get in terms of economic output, in terms of standard of living, there's always more and more people that we're told need to be integrated into society. And essentially, we have to accept them regardless of the circumstances. So this kind of, this research kind of came in a sideways fashion. I want to give a hat tip to my buddy Richard for providing a lot of the information that I'm going to bring to you today. The first thing was this article from a website called humansarefree.com. And here's the headline. The headline is normalization of pedophilia goes mainstream. Child molesters are rebranded as minor attracted persons. Now, if this doesn't shock you, at least in the sense of that this is actually happening, you might need to check your pulse right now. This is one of those things that over the last decade, many on the right have been sounding the alarm at least from a sexual orientation perspective, that we have continued to move more and more and more in the extremes direction. Where society is being mandated to become tolerant of behaviors that are not normal. Behaviors that are not prevalent. And regardless of how you feel about transgenderism or homosexuality, the fact is is that these these orientations are overrepresented in our media as a comparison to the entire population of the country. And the reason why they're overrepresented in the media is because of this consistent attempt at integration. If you don't support these behaviors, then you're deemed to be a hater, which makes you a perpetrator. If you, you know, want to teach your children that these behaviors are not okay, or if you have any strong feelings against these behaviors, you are made into a perpetrator and you are to be ridiculed. You are to be destroyed. You're to lose your livelihood. You're to lose your children. You're to be harassed. You're to be physically assaulted in public. These are the kinds of dangers that exist if you are deemed essentially a perpetrator by society. And now we have a rebranding of pedophilia into a minor attracted person, which the right as much as even a decade ago has been sounding the alarm bells would eventually be a sexual orientation that society would be forced to accept. Now, I'll post this in the show notes, but essentially the, the, the piece that I want you to understand is this is going to be the next phase. Now, we had almost a decade-long battle with respect to same-sex marriage that eventually resulted in the Supreme Court overruling the majority of the country. Now, this is an important thing that I want to point out to everybody because right now, Even today, I'm seeing all this argumentation about dismantling the Electoral College and how the United States, how one person's vote is deemed uh, unequal to another person's vote because of the, the Electoral College or because of how the Senate is dispersed. This is the next phase of argumentation with respect to voting is the left is going to attempt to dismantle all of the aspects that protect the smaller states and the individuals from the mob. Because Democrats are very close to achieving a total majority over 
the Republicans in the United States, thanks to continual illegal immigration and eventually citizenship that will give the Democrats a probably a generation or more of total domination within the country's voting system. So this is something that needs to be addressed. We have to be aware of the fact that these extremes keep coming out. And after we settled the, well, it's not settled per se, but the Supreme Court essentially, well, I apologize. The point I was going to make is that Democrats continuously yell and scream about about democracy, about how important it is that the majority are given what they want. But in the case of same-sex marriage, there were about 33 states that made a run at changing the definition of marriage, and it lost in every single state. The closest they could get was a civil union. But no state in the union would change the definition of marriage to anything other than between a man and a woman. So when the Supreme Court overruled this capability and forced the states to accept any marriage license, is if, even if it's between two people of the same sex, it overruled the will of the people. So you need to understand that leftists will only advocate for majority rules so long as they occupy the majority. The minute that it flips, and I've seen this personally in Congress, where the Democrats, when they were in the majority, they had no problem bulldozing the Republicans. But the minute that the power structure flipped and Republicans were now in the majority, the Democrats would just lecture consistently about how the majority needed to respect the rights of the minority because they were also elected by people in America. So don't fall for any of this nonsense about how it's important that one person's vote count as much as another person. The fact of the matter is the Democrats will only exploit the system so long as it is an advantage to them. The minute that somehow the ideas and principles of conservatism would swing into a majority state and conservatives would be able to pummel Democrats from a simple 51% majority position, the Democrats would yell and scream about how it's tyranny of the majority and their minority people, have, you know, the minority has rights in terms of the small group. Don't fall for any of this. That's sort of a sidetrack. I want to get back to what I was talking about with respect to this article on minor attracted people or maps. This is going to be the launch pad into today's topic. Where this is going to go and what you can expect this argument to form on is what's being referred to as a no map, a non-offending, minor attracted person. So essentially, the first group that's going to be attempted to be assimilated into our culture are pedophiles who are attracted to children. We're talking like prepubescent children but who have not actually acted on their impulses. And so the, the, the notion will be that we have to accept them into society, that we have to listen to the things that they have to say, and that they shouldn't be shunned, they shouldn't be ridiculed, and they certainly shouldn't be frozen out of any job opportunities, that they should be able to be open with their desires. But because they haven't actually acted on them, we can't shun them as some type of an outlier within society some type of a, an unacceptable behavior. Now, when, after 2015, when the aspect of same-sex marriage was settled, 
This was all supposed to be over. But then all of a sudden you saw transgenderism begin to enter the arena. Now, why is that? Nobody cared about transgenders five years ago, 10 years ago. Everybody saw transgenders as being some weird fringe side of society. The notion of a man thinking he's a woman, of him castrating himself so that he could have some kind of a medical manufactured version of, of female genitalia. This was nuts. Now, it's still kind of nuts today. But as you can see, when society is accepting of a, a transgender child being photographed with a full adult, with a, with a full adult who's completely naked, and this is considered to be okay, you find yourself looking at the situation and going, what the hell is going on around here? When, when was this considered to be okay? Why is it that we're even talking about this? A few years ago, we would have looked at this kind of thing and been like, no, absolutely not. This is, this is nuts. It's insane. This shouldn't even be up for debate. And yet here we are. Why does this keep happening? It's like we're in this, it's like every new step is more and more radical. It's more and more extreme. And we're talking about things today that a decade or two decades ago, you couldn't even discuss in public because of how outrageous it is. And yet today we're being told, not only is it normal, but if you don't accept it, then you're a racist, you're a bigot, you're a homophobe, any number of, or you're a white supremacist. That's also the big new thing too. And I came across a topic that I think explains this. And I'm going to give credit to where I believe the originator of this, and it's a blog called The Bloody Shovel. And the author over there claims to have coined this term, and he calls it bio-Leninism. Bio, biological Leninism. And I'm going to do my best to explain this today. I admit that I'm a little, I'm still a little amateur on this topic. I'm still doing a lot of reading. There's about three very long form blog posts where the author talks about this topic. I think it's still evolving, but I invite you to go check out the bloody shovel.wordpress.com where you can read this. I'll post the articles in the show notes, but I think this is going to open a lot of your eyes to understanding why things are happening the way they're happening. The front, sort of the front TLDR of this is that because leftism is essentially moving towards socialism and communism, instead of discussing it from the normal sort of Marxist point of view, which is entirely about production and about wealth creation and wealth generation, biological Leninism deals mostly with aspects of race, gender, and sexual orientation as these mechanisms of, of differentiation between sort of the, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Now, the best way to, that it was described is the left has created sort of this biological Ponzi scheme that it uses in politics. And of course, if you don't understand a Ponzi scheme, it's basically this, this investment scam. And I discussed this a little bit briefly with my social security discussion, if you didn't hear that, but it's a scam where every new set of investors that buy into your investment have to subsequently fork over more and more money. So the people at the top, 
then solicit investors that enter into the scheme. And of course, in order for them to make money, they got to solicit more investors to get into the scheme and on and on and on and on until eventually people stop investing. And then the people at the very bottom of the, of the, of the scheme lose out, they lose everything. But the point is, is that each new level of the scheme requires a larger investment than the last in order for everyone to win. The left has essentially created this political Ponzi scheme whereby to sustain their own political movement, which of course, as I said, is based on the savior and the victim. They have to continuously generate larger and larger victimized groups in order to convince the group as a whole that they're still marginalized because all of these problems are designed not to be solved. That's the thing you have to understand. Racism, it's not designed to be solved. You know, any gender, you know, the aspect of gender dysphoria that translates into, into transsexual or uh, transgenderism, these are all problems that are not designed to be solved. The, the marginalization of these people is not designed to be solved. Because the minute that these people are no longer marginalized, they may or may not necessarily need the Democrat Party anymore. So these problems have to be continuously created and recreated in order to keep people's loyalty. So biological Leninism kind of starts like this. The author goes into details about how Leninism actually works. And he kind of discusses it like this, that the basis of it is loyalty. Because if you're in the ruling class and you have a desire to take over society, you need an army of people in order to help you do that. Well, the problem is, is that you're always going to have people within society, especially a society like capitalism, that don't need the ruling class because they are either very smart or they're, they're very uh, intuitive or they're capable of creating products or things. And inevitably, these people always succeed without the help of the system. They can create products or services that make them money. They're intelligent so they can manage their life well. And these are not people who are very loyal to a system or to a class of people because they don't need those people in order to succeed in their own life. So in order to create a system of loyalty, you have to find people that you can essentially give something to them in order to entice their loyalty. You need people who will look to you for something that they can't get on their own. And in doing so, they're going to pledge their loyalty to you because without you, they're going to lose whatever it is that they want. In this case, the author summarizes that desire, that item, as status. And of course, status can be achieved in any number of different ways. And he talks about the history of the feudal system and of course, how it essentially where you had lords and counts. But in this case, for the course of our own discussion, status is primarily going to be a product of money. Money and power, essentially. And so what's happened is you've got all of these members of society that for one reason or another have got a low status. Your minorities, your, you know, your transsexuals, your homosexuals, maybe in some cases, at least in parts of our past. These are all individuals or individual groups that essentially have a perceived low status. Now, this is irrelevant of the fact that standard of livings have risen in America, that prosperity has risen in America, that even people who fall below the poverty line 
actually have a equivalent or greater lifestyle than some of the middle income earners in Europe. These people have phones, they have homes, they have cars, they have air conditioning, they have cable television, but yet they're still considered to be impoverished. And of course, they're, they're told about how that's not their fault. It's the fault of the perpetrator, as I spoke about before. And so the author discusses how Lenin was able to essentially incite a revolution and take control of Russia and institute socialism by appealing to all of the downtrodden individuals within Russia and convincing them that they're going to get higher status as a result of instituting socialism. And in fact, that's why socialism is so appealing to so many people is because it essentially promises a higher status that they either cannot achieve on their own or otherwise would not achieve just as a product of their own decisions. And I'm going to read a little bit of the blog article article to you here to kind of set this up. The author says socialism works not only because it promises higher status to a lot of people. Socialism is catnip because it promises statuses to people who deep down know they shouldn't have it. There is such a thing as natural law, the natural state of any normally functioning human society. Basic biology tells us that people are different. Some are more intelligent, more attractive, more crafty, and popular. Everyone knows deep down in their lizard brains how human mating works. Women are attracted to the top dogs. Being generous, all human societies default to a Pareto distribution where 20% of the people are high status and everyone else just has to put up with their inferiority for life. This is just how it works. Socialism, though, promised to change all that, and Marx showed that they had a good plan. Lenin then put that plan to work in practice. And what did Lenin do? Exterminate the natural aristocracy of Russia and build a ruling class with a bunch of low-status people. Workers, peasants, Jews, Ukrainians. Lenin went out of his way to recruit everyone who had a grudge against imperial Russian society. And it worked brilliantly. The Bolsheviks, a small party with little popular support, won the Civil War and became the awesome Soviet Union. The early Soviet Union promoted minorities, women, sexual deviants, atheists, cultists, and every kind of weirdo. Everybody but intelligent conservative Russians of good families. The same happened in China, where, for example, the five provinces which formed the southern Mongolian steppe were joined up into the inner Mongolia autonomous region what is called a consolidate and surrender. In communist countries, pedigree was very important. You couldn't get very far in the party if you had any, uh, if you had very little noble or landowner ancestry. Only peasants and workers were trusted. Why? Because only peasants and workers could be trusted to be loyal. Rich people or people with inborn traits, which led them to being rich, will always have status in any society. They will always do all right. That's why they can't be trusted. The stakes are never high for them. If anything, they'd rather just have more freedom to realize their talents. People of peasant stock, though, they come from the dregs of society. They know very well that all they have was given to them by the party. And so they will be loyal to the death because they know if the communist regime falls, their status will fall as fast as a hammer as well. And the same goes for everyone else, especially those ethnic minorities. So I hope that this 
kind of brings a little bit of this into, into focus for you. The goal of the left is to essentially find the most downtrodden, beaten deviants in society and to promote them within the society and promise them things either through socialism or some brand of centralized control like we have today. And you can see it all across the, all across the, the landscape. The demands for high tax rates, the institution of hate speech laws, the cultural, basically the cultural beating of anybody who would dare point out any minority or anyone who's considered to be part of a victimized group as being at fault for anything that they actually did. These are all elements that are essentially designed to elevate people with seemingly low status. And I say seemingly because to be perfectly honest, our society has evolved to a point where there is a vast amount of cultural equality. We see minorities in various different instances being very successful. And in fact, more often than not, it's the cultures of these different minorities that turn on those who are successful as being traitors to their, to their skin color or traitors to their culture of not being authentic, all because they broke away from the system and managed to achieve, achieve success on their own. So, I mean, you're not allowed to leave these victimized areas. You're not allowed to break away and show the group that if they actually exercise personal responsibility and made proper choices, that their, their lot in life would actually increase. And of course, the politicians can't allow that either because it would rob them of their power. They need people who are loyal people who buy into essentially the socialism mindset because otherwise politicians will have no reason to exist. They too would fade away. And so the people who are successful on their own, those who will always do all right, have to be essentially done away with. Now, what the vast majority, especially of the younger generation who favor socialism, don't understand is when Lenin took power, he had to eliminate all of the people who would essentially do all right. And when I mean eliminate, I mean they were rounded up, they were arrested, and they were shot. So who, who was shot? The intellectuals, the professors, they were shot. The engineers, the producers, and the, the people who were mechanically inclined, they were shot. And there were these purges that took place, and there were millions and millions of people who lost their lives during the course of Lenin essentially eradicating the country of anybody who wasn't explicitly loyal to the Communist Party. This is how he succeeded. And of course, Stalin took over and continued the process where there was more and more purging and then essentially the only people who were left were the ones who were the most loyal. Either you were going to be loyal because your status was increased through the course of communism being instituted, or you're going to be loyal because you don't want to get shot. Either way, the system worked and it worked well. And of course, the only reason it collapsed was because capitalism ended up becoming more desirable than loyalty to the party and the system fell apart. But there's an interesting part that was sort of buried in this. And it was something that was just barely quoted by the author, and it led to a completely separate article. And this is called Auster's First Law of Majority-Minority Relations in Liberal Society. 
Now, there's a bunch of different variations of this first rule. I'm going to read a few to you, and I want you to really think about if this sounds familiar. So if the first one would be, the worst any designated minority or alien group behaves in a liberal society, the bigger become the lies of political correctness in covering up for that group. The worse any designated minority or alien group behaves in a liberal society, the bigger the lies of political correctness in covering up for that group. That's sort of a, these are all variations of the first law. Here's another version. The worse a designated minority group behaves, the more we must blame ourselves for it, as in society. The worse a designated minority or non-Western group behave, the more racist it becomes to speak the truth about their behavior. Now, here's a long form of this same rule. And again, just focus on, think about today's cultural landscape and how this applies. When a society acting with the purpose of eliminating all historic forms of exclusion and discrimination including ultimately its own historic and ethno-cultural identity as a society, admits large numbers of people into it which do not fit into it, either because of lower abilities or incompatible cultural and religious adhesions, the fact that they do not fit when it's finally realized can only be blamed on society itself. Think about the notion of America being a melting pot. The reason why we refer to America as a melting pot is because we have people of many different cultures that come to America and assimilate into Americanism. They assimilate into what is essentially considered to be American culture. Whereas multiculturalism is more like a salad bowl where you have a bunch of different ingredients that are all mixed together, but they don't combine in any particular way. So in this case, the application of the first rule is when a society has at its root center anti-discrimination to the point where it eliminates all historic forms of exclusion and discrimination, even going so far as to destroy its own history. And then that group brings in outside cultures that don't fit when everyone finally realizes these cultures don't fit, we have to blame society itself. It's not the fault of the culture that essentially is the nail that sticks out. It's the fault of society. It has to be that way. Now, it continues. To blame the lack of fit on the newcomers would be to revive the very discrimination that their admission was meant to overcome. Okay, so we can't blame this new culture or this new identity, which doesn't fit in our culture. We can't blame them for the fact that they don't fit because it would revive the very discrimination that we were admitting them into the group to, to get rid of. We were trying to not be discriminatory. So we can't actually blame the responsible party because we're non-discriminatory. It would destroy the very principles of the culture. So it says, as long as the host society accepts the principle of non-discriminatory inclusion as the very basis of its own moral legitimacy, 
all of our morals are based around it. It must therefore keep admitting more and more unassimilating people whose lack of ability to function in or identify with the society becomes more and more troublesome. A problem that, in accordance with Auster's first law of majority-minority relations in a liberal society, must be blamed more and more on the racism of society. Is it starting to make sense now? If our society is entirely built on the notion of non-discrimination, and that we are forcibly admitting groups that don't fit within our society, because doing so is adherence to our own principles of non-discrimination. And then of course, when they don't fit in society and they don't assimilate into society, we're not allowed to blame them. So we have to blame society, but more to the point, the more that this becomes a problem, the more racist society is led to be or led to become, or, or more that we have to claim that society is racist. The more and more on race, we have to blame racism of the society for the root cause. It says, thus, the more the society undoes itself in the name of indiscriminately including and favoring these diverse peoples who cannot assimilate, the more racist and guilty it becomes in its own eyes, leading to more and more minority preferences, speech codes, anti-hate laws, official lies, and the multicultural dismantling of the majority culture. Now, this is a lot to unpack, but I feel like this paragraph accurately describes a vast portion of the kind of, the kind of political strife that is taking place in America today. The left has no doubt won the culture war, and at the heart of the left is this non-discriminatory practice of including more and more groups and more and more cultures into American society that don't fit. And the reason why they have to include these cultures is because they have to find fuel for their own political Ponzi scheme. And in fact, the more undesirable the group, the more misbehaved the group. Think my article on pedophiles that I talked to you about. Why on earth would the left want to start including pedophilia, pedophilia into its political platform because this is a outrageous group with respect to behavior. No way society would accept a group like this. But then of course, the more marginalized the group, the more powerful they'll become because of course, those who people who are our pedophiles in society understand that without the power of the Democrat party to bring them into the fold within the culture, they would be nothing. They would be relegated to the darkest corners of American culture. So that makes them incredibly loyal to any politicians or people in power that are able to essentially elevate their status within society. They become loyal to the party because everything that they have is now as a result of that loyalty. Democrats need loyal people. They need loyal groups. And they achieve that loyalty by promising higher status to people who otherwise believe they will never attain it on their own. And by doing so, they gain more power over the majority until essentially they are the majority. And in this case, we can see 
that this is self-destructive behavior because, of course, some of these cultures don't fit within American society. And so because we're not allowed to discriminate, because we're not allowed to point out that these particular cultures cannot or will not assimilate because it would undermine the very principled core of our society, then, of course, we have to blame society itself. And the more this happens, the more this goes on, the greater the churn of this negative feedback loop, the more, the more racist and guilty our society becomes in our own eyes. And then as the, as the, as the paragraph said, it leads to minority preferences. So this elevates, this is where you get minority rights, where essentially your skin color becomes codified into law as elevating you as a protected class. So you now have rights that other people do not have based purely on your appearance. Speech codes, anti-hate laws. Now there are certain words you can't say, certain phrases you can't say because it's considered hate speech. If you point out that a particular group or culture is misbehaving in society, that they're not assimilating, that's considered hate speech and you need to go to prison. And then eventually official lies. So and what they're talking about is when these cultures misbehave and it makes the news, they've got, it's got to be covered up. There have to be excuses for the behavior. We can't just tell the truth. No, no, no. We have to lie about it. And the bigger the misbehavior, the bigger the political correctness and the lies that surround it. And eventually you have the dismantling of the majority culture. And in many cases, that's what's actually the end goal. The end goal is the destruction of American culture, the destruction of American society. Now, you may potentially be asking yourself, why would they want to do that? And so you have to go back to the very core aspects of progressivism and also postmodernism because they're intertwined. Progressivism has at its core the rejection of the American founding the rejection of the Constitution, the rejection of the Declaration of Independence, and the belief, essentially, in the group over the individual. And then you have postmodernism, which is essentially a complete rejection of the Enlightenment period, the belief that Western culture is a complete failure, and then you get really radical ideas such as, such essentially as relative truth, relative morality, that your truth is just as relevant as my truth, that your morals, even if you believe that you're morally correct in slaughtering innocent people, well, your morals are no more equal than my morals. I have no right to tell you that your morals are, in fact, immoral, and neither does society. But this, this notion of bio, biological Leninism, is, it, I invite you to do your own research and to read on this because it's very eye-opening to me because it explains all of this behavior that I see from the Democrat Party. It explains why these issues that were never issues. I mean, my God, we're sitting here arguing about whether or not who's going to use what bathroom. When this has been a societal separation for really as long as civilization in the West has existed. We just separate the sexes in this manner. And 
why is this even a thing? Why are we arguing about this? Why are we talking about this? I mean, why is it that we're now being told that we have to become accepting of people who believe it's okay to have sex with, with prepubescent children? There's nothing okay about this. It's, it's not only disgusting and repulsive, but it's, it's immoral and unethical. We have, scientific, we have scientific research that shows there's immense psychological damage, not to mention the fact that it's just plain gross. But I can tell you in the next few years that perspectives like my own are going to be considered, they're going to be considered, you know, oh, you're, you're white supremacist because you won't accept these people into society. Because we have at our core, if you're because of the cultural war that has been won by the left, they now own the education system. They own the media. And now everything has to be non-discriminatory. You can't discriminate against anybody for any reason. Well, that is unless, of course, you're white, in which case you can discriminate all day because the very the very um, foundation of progressivism is built upon a structure of power. It's a power hierarchy. That's that's to understand the motivations of progressives. All you have to understand is everything is about power and biological Leninism is is essentially a, a component of that of that power structure. How do you get power? You need to raise an army. How do you raise an army of supporters? Well, you convince them that their status will be elevated by supporting your party. And as long as and the more downtrodden, the more beaten down the more dregs of society, the more outcast they are, the more outlandish their behavior, the greater their loyalty will be when you bring them into society, when you elevate their status within society. Because now they know if, you're part, if the party dismantles, if the party goes away, all of that also, all that status goes away. All the money, all the power, all the influence, it all goes away. That's essentially the the motivations of the left. Now, what do we do with this information? Well, about the only thing that I can tell you is things are going to get worse in terms of the culture war because the left's entire, the, the, the fuel that, that moves this actual movement, the, 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 the reactor core that powers the progressive movement is is filled with all of these supposedly marginalized groups and they have to get more, they have to start kicking over rocks and they have to start digging into the dirt to find individuals who are not just easy to find on the surface. I mean, we've ran through a number of the groups. We've ran through women. We've ran through homosexuals. We've ran through all of the ethnic minorities. And now we're on to transgender individuals. But I mean, we're not like, these problems are not designed to be solved. They're designed to continuously exist in perpetuity. These people have to be continuously convinced, no matter how much power they have, no matter how elevated their status becomes, they have to always be convinced that the someone else has more power. They have to be convinced that the man, the nameless, faceless individual out there has more than they do and they don't deserve it. And as long as they give up, a little bit more freedom, as long as they give up their vote, then they'll be able to take from whoever it is that has more, whether it's more power, more wealth, more prestige, better looks, I don't know, and redistribute it amongst the, the downtrodden of society. 
It's sick. It's absolutely sick. The last thing that these people want to hear is that they could achieve higher status in society all on their own. That if they exercised personal responsibility, that many of them could elevate their status within society without anyone doing anything. And that there are a number of people out there that would love to be able to help them because in the process of helping them, they help themselves. But individualism, well, I've heard it said by other people in that there's no power in saying yes. There's only power with respect to government in saying no. And by saying no, then you open up a wealth of possibilities for yourself in terms of power and wealth. But ultimately, you can see why so many people are attracted to socialism and communism because they don't feel like they have anything to lose and everything to gain. They feel like they can achieve elevated status in society all without having to do anything except surrender their vote and some of their freedom, which they don't really feel like is useful to them anyway. What good is the opportunity to create and the opportunity to succeed if you don't believe it'll ever happen to you anyway? And our society has done a really great job at convincing a lot of people that the reason why they exist in their own circumstances is not because of the own, not because of the choices that they've made or haven't made, but because of someone else through racism and discrimination has actively worked to keep them down as though it's personal. And the fact is, most of us don't even care. We're too busy running our own lives. We're not interested in making the suffering of somebody else a priority. There's, there's just not enough hours in the day to do that, let alone there's nothing for us to benefit. There's no benefit. I have no, I, I do not benefit in the least of going down the street and finding a panhandler and kicking them into the street. I, there's, there's no benefit to that. It doesn't do anything for me. It takes time out of my day and physical effort and all for what? Nothing. But if I ran a business and I'm looking for people to work for me, maybe that panhandler has skills that I could use. And in the process of helping build my own business, they help themselves because they earn money that way. But instead, this is, but the left would have no power if all it did was tell people that they can achieve all of the success on their own. And certainly if they were to have the message that, yes, in a free society, some people are not going to succeed. Some people are going to fail. Some people are going to die. Because inherently we are all unequal, not necessarily unequal before the law, but we are unequal before nature. Nature itself is unequal. Some parts of the earth are harsh environments. Some parts of the earth are not. Some animals live. Some animals die and go extinct. Nature is itself inherently unequal. Some of us are more intelligent. Some of us are taller. Some of us are better looking. Some of us are faster. Some of us can jump higher. Some of us can hold our breath underwater longer. Some of us can see. Some of us cannot. We are all unequal. And there is no amount of legislation or government control that will change that. There is no amount of success in destroying the people who succeed so that you can prop up the people who did not. Because eventually you'll have no success. The system may be distributed unfairly. 
but it was distributed to the people who earned it. It's not perfect, but it's the most perfect system that we have available to us today. When you look around at the rest of the planet and the rest of your options, they don't look so good. There may be individual places that are better. There may be individual places that are worse. But the fact of the matter is, is that the United States still represents one of the best places to be prosperous in the world. You still have the greatest chance at individual freedom, even though we're losing it every day. But ladies and gentlemen, I invite you to do this research. I invite you to go look up biological Leninism. There is a vast, vast treasure trove of information, more so than I can cover in the hour here today. But this at least gives us kind of a blueprint of what we can expect from the left over the coming years. And you need to understand, ladies and gentlemen, it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. The more power these people achieve, the greater their ability to begin to move society towards a socialist or communist system. And it is only for the purposes of achieving loyalty from the people who they need votes from. Their intention is not benevolent. And unfortunately, the people who are downtrodden, the people who are marginalized, who believe that they're going to achieve this higher status, will never actually see it, at least not for long. Because eventually the people who have actually built this country, the people who actually create the businesses, who innovate and create products that people use every day, they're going to go away. Whether they're rounded up and shot, whether they're excommunicated, whether they just die off naturally. But if you do not foster a system whereby people can succeed based on their own capability, then you're left with essentially a bunch of nothing. You're left with a bunch of people who consume and don't actually make anything. And society rots and our country rots. And success becomes impossible. So why even bother attempting to achieve it? You'll be struck down. And will decay and will fall behind and people will die until there'll be an outcry for the kind of innovation and the kind of system that we have today where people still have a chance to make things and do things that can be consumed by people to make their lives better. If you remove the incentive for success, then you get no success. And of course, the socialist or communist system that is built upon the foundation of capitalism will decay and will crumble. And people will then have to find ways to pick up the rubble. But a lot of people are going to get hurt in the process. I don't know what to do or what to say. I, I spend a lot of time trying to understand what can I do? How can I change the trajectory of America? And I don't have an answer for you. I don't think there's an easy answer whatsoever. Quite frankly, these days, about the only solution that I can offer is if you're the kind of person who's innovative and can succeed on your own, that you do whatever you can to isolate yourself from this coming mess. Because at the end of the day, any amount of benevolence that you offer is only going to be, it's only going to be used against you. It's, it's unfortunate. It's, it's scary. But I don't think that 
many people, certainly not the majority of Americans, really have any idea what it is they're asking for. They're asking for a world that they really truly don't want to live in. But I fear that they're going to have the opportunity to try it out. Anyway, I don't necessarily mean for this podcast to be a huge downer. It's more of understanding why things are happening. Because if you can understand why they're happening, then you can begin to anticipate what future events are going to take place. And ultimately, that's going to mean the difference between keeping your family safe and maybe not keeping your family safe. Understand that the life that we enjoy today, the prosperity that we have today, it's not going to last. It's, it's going to go away. Maybe sooner for some of us than others. But this, this is, we are living in a fairy tale land right now. We are living in a, a time period that 10 years or 20 years from now, we might look back at and think about how good we had it when everybody thought it was so terrible. So just some things to keep in mind. I invite you to read some of this information, take a look at it for yourself, for yourself draw your own conclusions. But as always, I do thank you for listening. And if uh, you have any interest in corresponding with me or with following up on the podcast, you can do so at facebook.com slash politics band, or you can tweet at me on Twitter at politics band. Thank you again, everyone for listening. I do appreciate your time and we will talk to you next week.